Hi, I'm Abby, and I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to these Sepsis Research Feet Words of Sepsis podcasts. Over the course of eight episodes, we'll be talking to sepsis survivors and their families about their experiences of sepsis. Some of the stories you hear may be quite painful. Many are uplifting. They're stories of shock, fear, sometimes loss, often courage, but also of hope. Sepsis is a condition that still takes the lives of some 50,000 people in the UK every year. That's about five lives lost every hour. Our hope is that through these podcasts, many more people will become aware of sepsis and that some of the loss and suffering related to sepsis can be prevented as you increase your knowledge and the knowledge of others. So do please listen, share these words of sepsis and help to raise awareness and save lives. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Kimberly. She developed sepsis very quickly and describes it as coming out of nowhere. We'd been for a walk along the beach, gone to a beer garden, had a couple of drinks sitting outside, just having a nice chill day. And then when we got back home, I started to feel very cold and shivery. So I assumed that I'd like got too much sun. Scottish, not you're really used to <laughs> nice weather. So you put it down to that kind of thing. I just thought, oh, I feel a bit ropey. I had my my blanket, duvet, my dressing gown, and I was still shivering, couldn't get a heat in me. And then Nathan, my husband, made some dinner. So ate that and then was immediately sick. So at that point, I was like, right, off to bed. I'll feel better in the morning. I didn't feel better in the morning. I kept being sick all through the night. Nathan was getting increasingly worried. He was like, there's just something off. He had one of these heart rate things on his watch. So he put his watch on me so he could kind of see what was going on. And he decided to phone an ambulance. Despite the, listen, you're overreacting. It's just a wee tummy bug. I will be absolutely fine. So he phoned the ambulance and then after half an hour or so, they hadn't arrived. So he phoned them again and they were asking him to ask me questions so they could gauge my response. And at that point, I remember trying to speak, but it wasn't words coming out. It was gibberish, gobbledygook. So I thought I was maybe having a stroke, started to panic. I couldn't. I couldn't stand up. I was still needing to be sick, but I couldn't, like, I had no strength in me. And I, I started to get very scared at that point. So it wasn't long after that that the, the ambulance arrived. And I can remember the real hubbub of, you know, there's people everywhere climbing all over the bed and giving me glucose and everything. And I don't remember anything after that until in hospital doctors telling me that I'd been in a coma for eight days, that I'd had meningococcal septicemia, that I'd gone into severe septic shock, all my organs had shut down and they needed to put me in an induced coma to save my life. Um, It's just a very bizarre thing to be told. You're like, (laughs) it doesn't sound right because I was fine. 
and I have been cold before, I've been sick before, and there was nothing in the early symptoms that made me concerned at that point. It was only the later confusion and not being able to speak that really started to scare me. But yeah, it's, it was such a surreal conversation, the doctors telling me what had happened. Being in a coma, there was a lot of confusion goes on anyway, because there's there's all the kind of hallucinations and weirdness. So you're never entirely sure what's real and what's not real. But I, I, I can remember like the seeing the relief on Nathan and Lucy's face and everything. And you're going, this was this was pretty bad. This was really quite serious. And then over the next few weeks, you start to piece together just how serious it had been. And I, I can remember we'd been invited to my in-laws for Easter Sunday, where we're going to have roast lamb. I can remember thinking, I missed that. And she would have already prepped all the veg. <laughs> it's one of these really daft things that immediately pops into your head. And you're like, oh, she'll be so annoyed because she will have put loads of effort into getting that already. And then I missed it. <laughs> Kimberly says that's a feeling she felt a lot. I think for, for me, the the overwhelming feeling was guilt because I knew that, I mean, I was was not aware of what was going on in real life. But in real life, my husband, my mum, his parents, my daughter, everyone's there really worried, constantly not sleeping, hardly eating, you know, getting the sandwich from the hospital shop and just there all the time, not knowing what was going to happen. So I wake up. So I'm like, oh, right, okay, well, I've missed eight days. But those eight days were horrific for the people I care about. So it felt kind of like, I'm sorry I put you through that. I wish that you'd known I would be okay at the end. But I mean, nobody could, nobody could tell them that. The doctors didn't know that. You know, the doctors are telling them, I will told Nathan early doors, you kind of need to be telling people that they, if they want to see her, they better come in because we we just we don't know which way this is going to go it's kind of we've done all we can we've thrown everything at it and there's now just a period of wait and hope which I can't imagine if the roles had been reversed and if it had been Nathan in that situation how I would have coped with that uh, hanging just there is nothing you can do You've just put all your faith in the NHS doctors to just, and the treatment's available and hope. It's just hope that it rallies. But yeah, so the eight days, I, I had no idea what was happening. I became aware, like I, I would try and move and I couldn't move. I had like no physical strength at all. I think... You initially think you must be like strapped down for your own safety, but you're not. You've just got all muscles of wasted. Um, I had a feeding tube. I was on 24-hour dialysis because my kidneys had shut down. I had a little bag of poo at the side of me. You know, it's just all lovely stuff. And then I realised I couldn't see properly. Like everything had a pinkish hue. My 
hands, feet, nose and lips had gone black. My tongue was black. Kimberly says it was a confusing time for her and a lot for her to take in. It's just trying to make sense of how could how could all this have happened from nowhere? And I think initially the main concern that the doctors had was about my kidneys and my organs and things. But to me, that wasn't my main concern because they just do what they're supposed to do. I don't really know. But my, my hands and my feet were black and it was the one thing that nobody really was talking about. Because it's, I mean, actually, I understand now it's just one of these things. It's not essential to live. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But I was like, you know, will they come back? What's happening? You know, am I going to be facially disfigured? My nose, what's happening? I mean, when I think about it now, it seems quite silly. But my initial, um, I kept asking them, can you get somebody to just talk to me about what's going on? So they got a tissue viability nurse to come down and they took like thermal imaging pictures so that they could see if the skin underneath the black was alive or dead. And thankfully, all but my feet were fine and just some debriding over the next few weeks sorted that out. But it's just the disconcertion of waking up and you're like parts of your body have died while you've been unconscious. You're like, and nobody did anything. What happened here? And they're like, yeah, well, we just wait and see. We focus on, there was a lot more going on than your toes turning black. We had other other fish to fry here. So, yeah, I think uh, my priorities seemed all skewed because I was like, oh, you know, kidneys, What? I mean, what do they do? I don't know. It's like, it, it, it was all working. I felt okay. But that's only because I was hooked up to all the machines. And I still kept having temperature spikes at night. So the constant taking of blood every few hours and they're checking for infection and we're going to have to move you on to a different antibiotic. So even once I was awake and on the way to recovery, there was still this kind of, it could dip back at any moment if we can't get all these other infections under control. After just over a month in hospital, Kimberly was discharged. But that wasn't the end of the story. On discharge, there was still the, we don't know about this, we don't know about that, we don't know what's going to happen here. There's a lot of unknowns, just send you home and hope for the best. Constantly going back for more uh, blood tests and all that kind of thing. I have been very lucky, like all my organs have fully returned function and they weren't sure that they would but there was the if you know if someone has a kidney transplant they've only got 50% function because they've only got the one so even if we get you 50% it's considered a success and at the point that the doctors had said right we're quite happy with you I was up over 80% and then like a, a year later it's back up at 100 so Actually, all the inside stuff started working properly by itself, which, you know, it's just a miracle, really. And I think once I understood the reason for the peripherals turning black, you know, that's your body just gets all the blood and pulls it to your organs to protect them, 
which is why you've not got blood at your fingertips or your toes or your nose. It's like, you don't need it. It needs to go here to look after these organs. Yeah, your own body is amazing. But then obviously sepsis is your own body having a, a wee moment to itself and going, this infection, I've never seen anything like it. We need to throw in the nukes. Let's get everything done. Just kill everything. Yeah, it's a it's a bizarre thing. It can be so amazing. But then when it goes awry, it really goes to pot. <laughs> I've had to have several surgeries on my feet. So I've had all my toes amputated now. It happened in various stages. To begin with, the, the hospital were keen to let my toes auto-amputate. The, the thought being, rather than create a new scar, which can lead to infection, and also when they, when they amputate, they need to go into healthy tissue to draw that line. Whereas auto-amputating, you might actually get some middle ground back. So they waited for everything to fall off, which took over a year of having black toes, the soles of my feet were black, just waiting every day, kind of like nurses coming in, giving them a wee wiggle, seeing if they're going to fall off. It became the the most bizarre uh, Facebook updates, like, yay, half my toes have gone now, woo! (laughs) Something I never thought I'd be celebrating. It was so bizarre. And then after a year, I still had three toes that were just not budging. They were black, they were dead, but they just weren't going to give up. So they took me in and amputated them. And then another year went by and I still was having infections and still lots of nerve pain. So in January this year, I had more taken off to kind of get to the the clean margins again so I'm still they're still not fully healed one of the scars keeps opening up again even though that was January but I've just I'm still uh, trying to get back to mobility again uh, I use my walker I use a wheelchair or mobility scooter when I'm outside I just want to get back to some sort of independence again I guess and independence without like pain it's difficult I understand that it's normal Um, it doesn't make it any easier knowing that it's normal and I just hope to get to a point where it's at a level that I can control and I'm just like, right, okay. So I need to do X, Y, Z today. It's going to hurt. I've got two days afterwards to kind of recover again. But overall, if that's all that's left as a, a scar from my ordeal, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky. That's it. I still have brain fog and fatigue and that kind of thing but once I started working again that has helped and you mentioned Wordle earlier Wordle, Sudoku, all these things try and keep my brain working it's like right I know you're not feeling it but you need to keep going you need to get back you're a bright cookie let's do this so it might just be like forgetting the word for something 
which really frustrating. But um, again, we all have moments like that. I mean, it was going to happen eventually. It's just happened earlier than I thought. And it's been a journey for the whole family. My husband, I mean, he's been absolutely amazing. He's had to become carer, carrying me in and out of the bath and lifting me everywhere those early days when I had a no strength and like bandages everywhere um but he's still like making the tea every day and doing all the washings and um again I mean when we got married you have these plans for your life and you know Lucy's now she'll be 18 this year it's you know there's this moment in time where she'll be off university maybe we can go traveling maybe we can do this we can do that and all that seems to have kind of gone for now hopefully it'll come back and we can do things going forward but yeah life the balance has definitely shifted and I feel I feel really bad that I mean my my mum mentions every time she comes around that the place is a mess and we should get a cleaner and blah 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 I'm like yeah but do you not know that like actually this is perfectly normal that the house isn't as spick and span as it maybe used to be because Nathan's having to do all of it on his own and priorities do you know what I mean the, the place isn't dirty it's just you know there's a pile of clothes there that we've not taken through yet Nathan and I, I, I think we're probably a lot closer because we've been like so reliant on each other and it's that realisation of just how much you actually really love that person, rely on that person, need that person, how they complete you, which obviously, I mean, we were in love before, but, you know, you've had that real kind of, wow, things were very nearly different. Lucy's uh, struggled. She was doing exams and things. And I think um, it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with. And I, um, now it's got easier as she's got older. Going to see her school shows and things. There's always that she has to make extra arrangements. Because I have to come in this side door with wheelchair and all the other stuff. But actually rather than it being a course of embarrassment, which I thought it might be, and I worried it would be, she's got this pride that I have overcome. And I'm she's showing me off to her friends, look, look what my mum's done. And I, I mean, again, everyone knows how much they love their mum and all that kind of stuff. But I think for her, it's that, yes, this is, you know, really cemented that, care in that relationship because it nearly went so it, it gives you that extra focus and cut out all the nonsense that goes on in life the things that don't really matter and actually focus in on what does matter Kimberly's experience of sepsis has been life-changing her courage and positivity in moving forward with her life after sepsis is really inspiring and we are so grateful to her for all that she does to raise awareness of sepsis. We really hope that listening to this Words of Sepsis podcast has helped increase your awareness of sepsis. 
do check out all eight episodes in the series and share them as widely as you can, using them to start conversations with friends and family about sepsis. It could save a life, possibly even your own. If you've been affected by anything you've heard or you'd like more information about the groundbreaking research into sepsis that the charity funds, please do visit our website www.sepsisresearch.org.uk where you can also make a donation. You'll be helping us to save lives today and fund research for tomorrow.